All right, Luke chapter 16 is where we're at, beginning in verse 14. And uh, as we come to this section, what you're going to find here is that this is um, a section where um, it is, is a little bit in response or, or kind of a, a little bit of a continuation of our last passage in uh, Jesus giving this parable of the dishonest manager. Uh, if you recall last week, we looked briefly at that. Uh, there he kind of turns his attention to his disciples and he gives them this, this story, this parable um, about a man who was rich and who had a manager who turned out to not really be a very honest manager. He uh, was one who um, squandered his master's uh, resources away. He spent it all. Uh, and then his basically the his master found out about it the and he's like look what's the deal I hear about all this you're not going to be a manager anymore you're going to get kicked out so get get everything in order so that way you can hand it off to somebody else and in the process of this uh, this guy ends up going and um, going out to all the people who owed his master money and being like yo uh, you owe a hundred um, you owe a hundred measures of oil. Uh, why don't you cut yours down to 50? Why don't you, you know, you, you owe like a hundred measures of wheat. Why don't you cut yours down to 80? Uh, and he ends up, you know, putting himself in a position where he looks really good to these, uh, to these people that he's, um, you know, giving them this massive discount on what they owed his master. Uh, and, and in the process of it, we're, we, we are told there that he does this because he's hoping to find a place in their house. He's hoping to find a place to land after he's uh, kind of fired from his position. And, and in the process there, uh, he does this, and his master sees that he's done this, and he calls him uh, shrewd. If you, if you look um, at verse 8, he says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Uh, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Uh, and, and then he goes on to say that, um, that uh, in verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Uh, and so uh, there we find that Jesus is telling this story where a rich man gets kind of like swindled by his dishonest manager, and then the, dis the, the rich man sees that the dishonest manager is doing something that is uh, really in his best interest there, uh, in his own best interest for the dishonest manager to like make a place to go after he gets fired. And the rich man sees it, and he's like, wow, okay, that was a power move right there. I see what you did there. So uh, it, it looks as if Jesus here, and, and he is, he's saying that this guy, he made, he made some, some real decisions uh, that were, were timely, that were important. And he calls them shrewd, and he says uh, that the people of this generation are shrewd, but, but the sons of light are not as shrewd. And what we said last week is that what he's getting at there is that uh, the reason why Jesus would commend this dishonest manager uh, is not because he, was, he should have been dishonest, but because uh, he reacted when he realized that his future was at stake, when he realized that, that his life was on the line, that he's going to have nowhere to be, he didn't have anything to go into after this, that he decided to make some changes that would benefit him. Right? And that's what he's kind of been telling the Pharisees, all who would hear him thus far. The future is coming. The, you're going to go to the judge and you're going to have to settle with your accuser and you know what's coming. So it's in your best interest to make a decision. It's in your best interest to decide what to do here. Uh, so you should, 
you know, uh, get on it. And he says, these, everyone's being a little bit lazy by not reacting to what I'm telling you. And so in the process here, this is what he's been saying thus far. Uh, and then he kind of gets to this section where he says, uh, you should use your money, use your wealth uh, in kind of this way that um, he, he, he doesn't use the, the general term there um, where he says, uh, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. At other times in the scriptures, when Jesus talks about um, money or wealth, uh, or, or a lot of times you see it mentioned, it's mentioned in terms of, of uh, cl- kind of classified as almsgiving. Uh, you know, it's kind of this money that's like uh, earmarked for the poor. Like this money is set aside for the poor. We should use that for them. And Jesus specifically doesn't use that word here. Instead, what he uses is just kind of this general word for money. He says, use your money to make friends. Go out and, and use it, right? And he's, he's saying that, that your, the, the resources that God has given you should be a tool for his kingdom. It should be a tool to help other people know him and meet Jesus. And then he goes into this section uh, about being faithful in, uh, chat, in verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in little is dishonest in much. And he goes on, uh, so on, to, uh, he finishes uh, with this kind of attitude of, of using your money and going and putting it out there and stewarding over it well. And he finishes with this, with this verse in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and love the other. Uh, um, devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and money. So he puts these two things in contrast to one another. You can only have one master. You can only serve one. You can either serve God or you can serve money, but you can't serve them both. It's impossible. You're going to love one and hate the other. That's what Jesus says. And so as he's saying this, uh, overhearing this, we're told in verse 14 are the Pharisees. And they have a problem with this. Uh, Luke tells us as much in verse 14. He says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, right? So they are specifically the people who Jesus says, you can't serve God and money. You can't love one master and hate the other. Uh, You can't be divided in your heart. You can't be committed to one and then also try to be committed to the other. He says, uh, the Pharisees here, they are lovers of money and they heard these things and they ridicule him. So the Pharisees are still keeping an eye on him. They know what's up. Uh, Jesus addresses this first teaching to his disciples because he's like, here's what you guys need to know. You got to start using your money uh, in a a wise way for God's glory. Uh, And the Pharisees overhearing it, they're not too happy about it. We're told they love money. They're, um, They're greedy. They're interested in accumulating more wealth and being recognized and uh, in, in the marketplaces, they're uh, interested in, in having wealth for their own, their own purposes, for their own means, for their own glory. Um, and, and so they don't, obviously, they don't like Jesus' teaching. They're not too happy about this. It says, uh, Luke tells us that they ridiculed him. And so Jesus comes back and he says this to them in verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus comes out now and he he warns them. He gives this warning to them that even though you may have success in persuading just men that, that you guys are holy, that you're doing all these things for a righteous cause. He says, you, you can you maybe you get a pass from them, from people. 
you're able to justify it before men. He says, even if you can pull that off, God knows your heart. God knows what's going on in the inner being of man. He knows and he can see beyond what we want others to to see or perceive. Their secret greed is, is visible to God. And what God thinks and what God sees counts for way more than what people think. Oftentimes we get, we get kind of lost and confused because uh, most of the time, as we're out and about, people are the ones who are giving us the most immediate reaction that we can, uh, we can respond to. People are giving us a, a reaction of, of displeasure or frustration or anger. And so instead of uh, staying focused on what God thinks, we start to get into a place where we want to start to please others and, and operate in a way about what they think and about how they are perceiving us and how, how we can do things to make them happy. But Jesus makes this point that God knows what's going on inside. He understands what's happening, and he calls it out explicitly. He says, for what is exalted among men, what you are pulling off there, your pride and people think that you guys are like being so holy and set apart and pure by like you guys are pulling in all this money and 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 um and they're you know giving you praise he says there what is exalted among men there's they're cheering you guys on and giving you glory uh it's an abomination in the sight of god it's the heart that god knows he has that insight and, and understanding And that self-exaltation does not honor him. It does not please him. In fact, throughout the scriptures, we find that it is God who uh, despises those who exalt themselves. Verse 16, or excuse me, chapter 16 of Proverbs, in verse 5, we read, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Again, in uh, the book of Isaiah, in this really great chapter um, in the opening in chapter 2, verse 11, we read this regarding the prideful. The haughty looks of a man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. You see, it's it's being set forth as such that God is the only one that is, is deserving of glory. And so these Pharisees are competing for God's glory. They are competing for God's glory by pursuing these riches, by pursuing this wealth in such a way that uh, they are receiving the, the, the praises of man. And, and so uh, Jesus has been saying that you guys think you're going the right way. He's been telling, telling them now, don't think just because people are giving you praise, because people are, are saying, well done, that you are headed on this right path. In fact, he, he now turns to address this type of attitude by breaking down the new era in which he is bringing into being with his arrival. Look at verse 16. He says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Right, so as, as you come to the text, you're like, what the heck does that mean? Because that's like a random thing for him to say in response to these people. But remember, he's getting at their, their self-exaltation, their pride, their selfishness, the self-centeredness. 
He's getting at their love of money, their pursuit of this. And so, as he knows that God hates the, the pride of the Pharisees, he comes out and, and tells them, you guys, you are pursuing this way, and you're telling people that this is the way to live, and you're enabling this, uh, you're enabling the fact that uh, these people are worshiping you and they're exalting you, but you're not leading where the scriptures go. So much so that Jesus frames it up by, by making this a matter of authority. He makes it a matter of, of authority about between, uh, really, realistically, the, the Pharisees, who are the keepers of the law, who the, they teach the law. Uh, that's why he references the law and the prophets here. And, and then he references his own ministry. So he pits them against one another. And, and so the, the goal of his statement here is to call out who is really leading the way uh, to show people how to, how to be in a relationship with God. Who's really doing that? He says here, the law and the prophets were until John. So he, he says, that's great. The law and the prophets are great, but there, there's a cutoff point. He puts a cutoff point in place here for the Pharisees. He says, since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. So there's a sense then, since John. John the Baptist is who he's speaking of here. The time up until John the Baptist is characterized by the law and the prophets. But now, he says, is the time for the kingdom. And the point of, of that then is that the kingdom, is, uh, the kingdom of God is the revelation of the promises that are contained in the law of, and the prophets. So what Jesus is getting at here is saying, John announces the arrival of Jesus. That's his job as the forerunner. He's John the Baptist. He goes out and proclaims that uh, the Messiah is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's uh, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. He's, he has, he's done this job of saying this. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus is the only one who has been preaching the kingdom of God. Before that, it was preaching the arrival of this coming Messiah preparing the way of the Lord. And now Jesus comes and there's a new era. And with this new era is new realities and new authority. And so what Jesus is telling them is, Pharisees, it's not about uh, sticking to these old ways. It's not about sticking to the law and prophets for the law and prophets sake. But rather, the law and prophets there functioned as a pointer to point you to the promises that were contained there. The law and prophets are full of promises about this coming Messiah, about what God will do through this coming Messiah, about what God will do through this Savior. And now the Savior is here, so we don't need to keep talking about how God is going to provide that because the Savior is here, and then he's telling us that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so there's this new opportunity to, to come and he says here, since then the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Now, this is a kind of a, a funny uh, way that this is described. There's all sorts of ways you can kind of go about this little section here. Uh, but the idea here is that there's this kind of pressure, this, this pressing in, uh, this idea of force. Um, and it's not that people are 
uh, are trying to fight their way in or, 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 or battle their way in. Um, it's not that they're trying to swindle God to get into his kingdom. Uh, but instead, it seems like what Jesus is saying here is that the gospel, the, the, the proclamation of the kingdom of God is such good news is that it compels people into his kingdom. Uh, Jesus begins to gather a crowd because he's preaching a, a fresh message that, is, uh, that every human heart is waiting to hear. He's preaching something that is, uh, is designed to resonate with each heart. It's the gospel compelling people to enter into the kingdom of God. You kind of find a similar uh, idea in Luke chapter 14 as uh, we looked at the, the story there about the, the, the parable of, the, of the, the banquet. In Luke chapter 14, verse 23, we see that the master gives his servants instructions and says, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. So it's kind of this same idea. Like, let people know, urge them, give them this, this understanding that they are welcome and that, they, uh, that there is good news to be had, that they can come into this feast. And so the kingdom of God is open. Jesus is proclaiming it. He's making it known. The gates are open. People are pressing into it. But by contrast, Jesus is indicating here that the Pharisees, they're supposed to be leaders, right, who are seeing what's happening before the rest of the people are happening. They've been studying the law and the prophets. They should see Jesus. They should be like, oh, we get what's happening. We know where this is going. We hear his message. Let's go. They should be the first people who went into the kingdom and who were like hurting people in like crazy. But instead, they are people who are standing outside of the gate and they resist going in. They're stubborn in their approach. And so, while Jesus comes under, uh, while, while he brings the law under the attack of, uh, of usefulness for one purpose, uh, he doesn't completely do away with it. He tells the Pharisees, the law and the prophets, for, the, for um, what it was supposed to do, it's done. Since John, it's passed. Now there's a new kingdom, a new era. But he does go on and say that there is still use for the law. He doesn't say that it's completely gone. He doesn't say that it's completely useless. He says in verse 17, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So he says here, Even though I'm telling you that it's a new era and a new time and things have moved on, and that we are proclaiming the kingdom of God now, that does not mean that the law is useless, that it is insufficient. Uh, what he says here is that instead is that really uh, it is so firmly important that nothing can cause it to pass away. That heaven and earth will pass away before even the smallest uh, little mark in uh, this kind of one dot phrase that it uses there. It's, it's kind of meant to be like uh, the, the smallest little uh, grammatical mark in, in the Hebrew uh, writing style, basically. Like the smallest little tiny thing, like maybe you forgot to dot your I, 
but you, everyone kind of knows, right? He's like, even that it won't be passed away. Even that cannot be erased. That's how firm, uh, firm it is. If the kingdom has come, uh, the period of the law and prophets has passed, but he's, Jesus says that the law does not fall. It's not over. The law points to the kingdom, and so it doesn't fail. Instead, it's transformed and fulfilled in Jesus. Its goal is Jesus. Its authority is expressed through Jesus. And so the Pharisees are lovers of the law, right? That's, that's what they're known for. They are known for being obsessed with it, for studying it, uh, you know, and, and digging in. And Jesus says, if you want to be obsessed with the law, no problem. But understand that the law points to me. And if you want to be obsessed with the law, then you got to deal with me. My kingdom is what it points to. And so he doesn't simply cast down the law, but says it serves an alternate purpose. Number one, as a reminder um, or as as a consistent pointer to the kingdom of God fulfilled in Jesus, uh, but also it serves as a call to righteousness because the things that God calls out in his law are things that we were intended to keep but could not keep because we are sinful. So it's not like God decided like, never mind, none of those things make any sense and like, it just, it's like that, all that, just kidding, it's stupid, don't listen to it. That's not what he's getting at here. He says, this is the framework for how you should, um, how you should try to live, how you ought to live. You should try to live within these boundaries, but this is not where you find your righteousness. You can't keep it. It's already been kept for you. And so it's still a helpful guideline uh, for the process of sanctification. It's still a helpful process for this idea of wholehearted pursuit of, uh, of the God of Israel. If you want to know him, you can look to the law and see his character and how he's called things out. And then he does like this kind of like random pivot, which to us seems like, like okay, I don't understand how we got here. But here we go. But it makes total sense when you see it uh, with the rest of the passage. Without any sort of transitionary remark, without any sort of like context for the Pharisees, because they knew where he was going, but we don't know because we're not first century Jews. He dumps this verse on us. In verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. It's like, I'm pretty sure we were just talking about like some other stuff and like randomly now, why do we have this one random statement about like, like divorce and adultery? What's going on here? What Jesus does here is he's bringing out some examples and some compelling examples at that. He mentions divorce to picture how this new era still calls for righteous living. He lays out a standard. And in effect, what he's doing here is he's looking at uh, the idea of the marriage covenant. 
if you make a vow, a covenant, to marry someone and to be faithful before, uh, to your spouse before God, if you then break that vow with God and with your spouse and enter into another uh, marriage covenant with another party, then that ultimately can be called adultery because the original vow was not kept. So that's what he's getting at here. Okay, at the, at the base level, that's what he's getting at here. So there are three parties in a marriage covenant, God, man, wife. Okay? And then in the process, if this is broken, then uh, that marriage covenant can be broken. And if you try to enter it into it with someone else, then uh, you're committing adultery because you're still supposed to be in this other covenant with this other person. So... Jesus says here that divorce is a violation of this three-way covenant between God, the husband, the wife. And if you're faithful, uh, you'll keep your vows and not get into this situation. That's, that's kind of what he's getting at here. Now, if the idea, if you boil down righteous living to faithfulness, uh, then what you're going to find is that you're going to boil down uh, sinful living to unfaithfulness. And so if you are going to live within God's proclaimed kingdom, then you've got to keep your commitment to God and to others. Now, this is the, the base framework of what he's talking about. Now, at this time, there are kind of two schools of thought. There's kind of two rabbis who are kind of running the show at the time. This guy called Hillel and this other guy called Shammai. And so they have this debate. It's like a big, big old deal about what are the proper grounds for divorce at this time. Shammai was kind of like a little bit more of uh, the only thing that you could have divorce for was uh, immorality, basically, like if there, if there was... Um, someone who, who broke the marriage vows, that would be a reason for that. Um, but then this other guy, Hillel, he added like uh, divorce for a variety of reasons. So he's basically like, uh, one of his most famous ones is basically like, if you didn't like the like meal that like your wife cooked you, you could be like, I divorce you, you're like out of here, right? Like you're like all, just anything that you could do to make like, that you were upset with the other person about, you could, you could, uh, you know, kind of end this covenant. He, this is kind of his, his prescription for this. Um, which sounds ridiculous, but you know that if the Pharisees are a little bit shady and taking advantage of people all the time, they're probably doing that. Um, and so in, in this process, what you find here is that, that Jesus is uh, speaking to people who are sitting in the midst of these kind of different camps and who are hearing these different arguments. And so they would allow these divorces on the, these various bases um, and that's kind of how it would go. Now, in this text, Jesus could have done what he's done in many other passages where he speaks about divorce and parachuted into like Deuteronomy 24 and, and, and talked about like, you know, the conditions of divorce and, and remarriage and um, things like that. But instead of doing that, he doesn't do that. He doesn't he doesn't cite Deuteronomy 24. He doesn't do what he does in other gospel passages where you find Jesus talking about divorce and remarriage. Instead, what he does here with this group of people is he calls out 
um, those who divorce and remarry as committing adultery. Now, this, uh, under the Mosaic law, would have been a, uh, a charge or, or would have been an offense that would have been punishable by death. Like if you were somebody who you were just like, oh, I'm like married, but I, I like, you know, I, I ran into like this other person at the market and, you know, I found them like really appealing and like I realized that they're actually my soulmate and so like I'm going to divorce my, my spouse and I'm going to go marry that person instead. That, that, that would be considered adultery. And he says here, uh, he calls it out in like a very high level um, capital offense. Now, the Pharisees weren't doing this. They weren't doing that. They were way more flex. But Jesus puts his words in absolute terms here. Divorce leads to adultery because of kind of the assumption that this person is seeking to divorce in order to remarry. They're not seeking to divorce in order to be single for the rest of their life. They're looking uh, to kind of upgrade their life um, and be unfaithful to their original vows. Now, when Jesus pulls this out and he goes above these two rabbinical schools, what he's doing there is he's making a point that he, his, his, uh, his um, ethic here is higher than those rabbinical schools, is more intense, is more intense than the law that they would have been prescribing to. He, he's, he's holding them to like a higher standard than they would have held themselves. So he says, you guys think you're in charge of the law. I can get more gnarly than you. He's saying, my new kingdom comes with these new things, and these new things are specifically set aside so that you might understand that my, I, am, I am the one who calls the shots. I am the new authority. I am the one who sets things straight. Now, as he does this, right, as a bit of a, as a bit of a, 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 he doesn't care about addressing this for this group of people who are listening to him right now, right? But for your sakes and for mine, let's just set this aside here. The point of this passage here is, uh, is Jesus to present himself as the ultimate authority to the Pharisees. He's only setting forth basic principles about divorce and, and adultery here. Not every scenario. Luke, it's not as full as Matthew's presentation because that's not what he's trying to do in Luke. In Matthew's, he gets into like, here, here are the reasons why, here are the options where divorce could, could be allowed and this and that and dive into like some of those things. Here, that's not what he's getting at. Why? Because this is for the Pharisees for a specific reason. Committing adultery is exactly what the Pharisees have been doing spiritually. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. That's, that's the last section was about, right? That's what he just said. You cannot serve God and money. So if you're going to say that you are in, in a covenant with God, you can't come up there and just be like, but that money though, that money is looking pretty good. I'm going to go after that. He's saying that you have to remain faithful. You've got to, to have complete fidelity in your relationship to God. You cannot pursue this. The Jewish people have been brought into a covenant relationship with God, but the Pharisees 
are turning their backs on God in pursuit of money. That's what's happening. So Jesus isn't just randomly teaching about divorce here. He's using it as an example of his authority and also to backdoor his way into telling the Pharisees, you guys are committing adultery. That's what he's getting at. That's what he's getting at here with them. You're supposed to be in this covenant, this marriage relationship with God. And now you're lost. You're at danger of of being cut off. Again, another warning. Breaking your commitment to God is sin. And this new uh, kingdom that God is bringing in, that, that Jesus is bringing in, is a call to live with righteous integrity in your promise to God and others. To live in righteous integrity in your promise to God and to others. Be faithful. Be faithful. The best way, the best way to keep your marriage covenant is to endeavor to keep it every single day. That's what you do. Just the whole point of the marriage covenant is unlimited, unlimited responsibility. It's not a contract. It's not set up to where you're like, well, if that person doesn't put in their half, I'm not going to put in my half. You put in your 100% regardless of whether the other person does. Because that's exactly how Jesus has treated us. Remember Romans 5.8. When we were sinners, Christ died for us. Right? We were putting in zero effort. Dead and enemies of God and hated him. And he put in 100% effort. So you can't come back and be like, well, you know, the other person's not like lifting uh, you know, their load, they're not pulling their own weight, they're not really putting forth the effort that they should. You've got to understand, you, got, you don't have a leg to stand on because you were an enemy of God and he came for you. He was 100% faithful when you were 100% unfaithful. And so Jesus proclaims this new kingdom, these new promises. And he invites us not to resist, but to run to him. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. We don't want to be a people who are far from him. But instead, we want to respond to who he is and go through those gates that he's opened for us so that we might know him. He's made a way for it to be possible. He's invited us to do so. The, the message that he brings is that proclamation of the kingdom of God. It is at hand. It is here. And all are welcome in his house. And so he urges us, just like we spoke of earlier, as the master told the servant to go and urge others to come in and fill his house He urges us to enter in, and he sends us out as his vessels to go invite others to come in, to know him and to enjoy him, and to be a part of his family. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word, and we pray that you would give us uh, understanding and insight. We pray that you would uh, equip us to live for you in a way that is wholehearted, We are really good about trying to throw all these 
alternate scenarios and alternate options at you. Well, what about this situation? Or, uh, you know, I know about this, this problem or you didn't consider this angle or, and a lot of times those aren't even our problems, but they're just excuses in the way of us deciding to walk wholeheartedly with you. As we get to each challenge, as we get to each um, obstacle, we know that you will be faithful to give us everything that we need in that moment. And so, we want to just take that simple step today of endeavoring to walk with you, to join you, And so, Lord, help us to pursue righteousness and to walk according to your character. Be glorified in your church as we respond together now. We love you. Amen.